This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of this conversation, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Laura Gomez, author of Inventing Latinos, a new story of American racism, published by the New Press in 2020. Laura Gomez is a UCLA professor and founder of the Critical Race Studies Program in Law. She has written several books, including Misconceiving Mothers and the critically acclaimed Manifest Destinies, The Making of the Mexican-American Race. Hello, Laura, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hi, DJ. It's great to be with you. Thank you. I'm super excited for you to be here. I didn't mention this earlier, but I am a big fan. I read uh, both your first book, I think it was Manifest Destinies, in... um, in my undergraduate, uh, I think upper division undergraduate class, and then again in graduate school. So I've been looking forward to this for for quite a while. So thanks a bunch for again well, agreeing to come so on. Kind podcast. of you. That that's so so wonderful to hear. I do have to correct you though, because that wasn't my first book. My oh. first book was on a subject that was entirely uh, well, not entirely unrelated, but it's a book called Misconceiving Mothers that was about oh. the phenomenon of. Um, sort of the invention of crack babies and and how that was uh, manipulated to be a war on women of color. Ah, well, thank you for that explanation. So I had that order reversed. So gotcha. Well, then that, that actually kind of makes sense right? Um, in some ways, right? How yep. maybe we can talk about how Manifest Destinies leads to maybe this book. Um, but before we get there, if you could, if you wouldn't mind, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I would. I would love to do that. Um, so I thought I might start with um, with my name because that's something that people always, you know, one of the great things about having a name, uh, Laura, Lauda, right, is that it's uh, it can, it's spelled the same and it can be pronounced in both Spanish and English, right? And I've always kind of had that that fluidity of of having um, people use the English pronunciation or the Spanish pronunciation and, and, and really, really go back and forth. And, and I like that. I have that kind of fluidity. Um, but the story of my parents and how they named me and my brother, and we're only actually um, uh, 14 months apart, but how they named us is funny because my name was given to me um, both my first and my middle name, I'm Laura Elizabeth, were both given to me in English. My dad picked the first name and my mom picked the uh, second name, the middle name. 
And my brother, who was born just a year later, his name was Miguel Antonio. And I was always kind of jealous of this. It's like, <laughs> what happened, you know, um, between 1964 and 1965? What, what, what kind of was going on? And I think that, you know, what I, what we attribute it to is my father's growing consciousness. Um, he was starting to take some uh, junior college type classes, or it wasn't technically, it wasn't a junior college, but what it would, it, that's what it would be called today, you know? Um, and the civil rights movement was enacted in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And the Black Civil Rights Movement was starting, and my dad went on to start college uh, at the University of New Mexico when I was two years old, and he uh, he founded and led the the movement for the formation of the Mexican American Students Organization, UMAS, United Mexican American Students Association, and. Um, you know, so his consciousness was really changing, right? And you can really see that in in the just the different names of myself and my brother. And so that tells you a little bit about my family. Um, and I grew up in Albuquerque, um, went to public elementary, uh, junior high and high schools there. Um, and I grew up with a strong Chicana consciousness because because of my my parents uh, having this political orientation from from the late 60s and so forth in in sort of at the very beginning of the the Chicano movement but I grew up in a segregated city right so Albuquerque at the time was um, I lived in the North Valley of Albuquerque and the North Valley and the South Valley along the Rio Grande were um, overwhelmingly, a Mexican uh, American, and you know the the hills. We we used to call it the heights. It was just called the heights. As you went closer to the mountains east, it became whiter. It was like as you went up in elevation, everything became whiter. Now I have to say that's no longer the way Albuquerque looks today. But when I was growing up in the 1970s, that's how it was. There was no movie theater in the valley. Um. And there were, it was just, it was just like two different cities, right? That was, that was my experience of growing, growing up there. Um, so when I, when I went to Harvard in 1982, um, I was immediately kind of confronted with this reality that people did not know what I was right? Racially, ethnically, they did, I was not cognizable in Cambridge in 1982. And partly that's because I have, uh, you know, I have a, I'm, I would say that if I'm in Los Angeles, people would look at me and they'd say, oh, she's, you know, she's Mexican. But if I'm in a setting where there's not a lot of Mexicans, they might, I might be ambiguous, right? So I remember people would say I was, they would think I was Portuguese, and they would say something like, oh, Gomes, right? You know, um, uh, in any event. So when I was at Harvard, I was confronted with this reality of people don't know, you know, who I am. And so I started wanting to study that in school. And I took all these African-American studies courses because there were no Chicago studies courses. There were no <laughs> Latino professors, right? And um 
And that was kind of how I made sense of intellectually of of this predicament by saying, okay, here's what we know about African-Americans. How do Chicanos compare? You know, and that's what I wrote my senior thesis about. And then I went to Stanford um, uh, and, uh, you know, I was I did my Ph.D. in sociology and my law degree uh, concurrently. So I was doing them at the same time and very much with the idea of what is the intersection of those two fields, those two disciplines, if you will. Um, and and so that kind of kind of. I think gives you a little bit of an introduction to who I am and how I, how I came to, um, to my, you know, intellectual uh, and uh, political orientation. Thank you so much for that. That's just wonderful to hear. Um, I think particularly, you know, just your personal experience, right? Being raised by parents, your father, you know, pursuing his education, um, you know, and, and the impact that that had, you know, on your family and your own experience. Um, if uh, I think where you left off kind of dovetails nicely into discussing the title of this book, and if you wouldn't mind maybe connecting it to the previous one to Manifest Destinies, um, which I think in some ways has, you know, a similar kind of like underlying theme, right, an argument at least around the creation of uh, the racial category for either Mexican-Americans or here in this book, uh, Latinos. But um, maybe we can frame it around just the question of, you know, what does or what do Latinos, you know, have to do with the story of racism in America, right? Particularly a story that we primarily understand as one that is defined by black and white issues, the history of slavery, etc. That is That is an excellent uh, lead-in, DJ, because I... I think that that's the the central theme of probably of my my scholarship. If you looked over the whole arc of my, you know, I'm in my 27th year as a as a professor. If you looked over that whole arc, it's really about racialization and how we understand um, the social construction of race and how we understand racism. And so. Um, when I think about this, well, let me just say a few words as you as you suggested about Manifest Destinies, uh, the making of the Mexican American race, which was initially published in 2007. And in 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 that book, I was looking at precisely the question you laid out, which is, well, where does anti-Mexican racism come from? And so I thought, well, to understand that, you have to go back to the root. And the root is the 1830s and the 1840s and the U.S. um, quote-unquote westward expansion and this notion of manifest destiny and this notion that the U.S. was, the Americans were the chosen people and they were destined to take over the entire continent. And that leads to the Texas Republic and then Texas statehood and then the invasion of Mexico in 1846. And what that book focuses on is what happens to um, what happens to those people who overnight become American citizens. There were 115,000 Mexicans 
who were living in that northern half of Mexico that became part of the United States, and they became American citizens. And so that book is really focusing on that story at the turn of the 20th century. But I wanted to continue the story, basically say, okay, let's take it up 100 years and let's look at the turn of the 21st century and what is happening. And then let's expand it from looking at Mexican-Americans to looking at all Latinos. What kind of a picture, what kind of a story can we tell about anti-Latino racism? And in particular, as you said, how it is related to, in a kind of a dialectic or kind of a interactivity to um, anti-African-American, anti-Black racism, which is so central in this country, right? The formation of this country uh, as a as a racist state, as a racial state, as a slave um, nation is just, it's, and, and, you know, one of the great things about the timing of the release of, of Inventing Latinos is that we're now having this national conversation that is long overdue about anti-Black racism. And in a sense, what I'm trying to do in this book is say, okay, where does, where does anti-Latino racism fit in that American story? Right. Thank you for that. And and particularly within the story of, um, as you just mentioned, with, with anti-Black racism, there's, uh, you know, as you explained throughout the book, that Latinos occupy a sort of racial middle ground, right, between notions of white and Black and between white and Black populations and have this very complicated history of, of how they've chosen to situate themselves, right, um, within mm-hmm. American race relations. Can you discuss that a little bit about that middle ground? Absolutely. So um, for that, that piece of the story really focuses on the 20th century, right? And so when you think about Latinos in the 20th century, they were uh, basically Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans. And Puerto Ricans, of course, come into the U.S. as a, um, as a colony um, in 1898 with the Spanish-American War. And so Puerto Ricans are part of the U.S. from that time on. There were Puerto Ricans in, the, in New York in the 20s, right? And that, that population increases in the, uh, hugely increases in World War II. Both the Mexican-American and the Puerto Rican population. Why? Because there was a labor shortage here, and there was a very direct, concerted, organized effort to recruit workers from those two places, and it succeeded. Right, and then of course with Puerto Ricans, they had the right to come and stay, and they were automatically citizens. But they were for sure second-class citizens. Now, what? This, this notion of, of Latinos as a buffer group, you see that in New York, you can actually look at it by census tracts and you can look at where Puerto Ricans were living and how they were a buffer between blacks and whites in New York. And you can think about um, uh, Spanish Harlem in this way, right? And in, Mex- in, in the Southwest, you can see similar dynamics it's you know it's it's different but it's very similar and in both cases it's this idea that 
we are not black and we would like to claim whiteness. And, you know, I always ask the question, okay, what was in it for whites and for white supremacy to allow those claims of, of whiteness? And what was in it was precisely this ability to strengthen the um, oppression of blacks and the white black color line by including in this kind of artificial limited way Mexican Americans and Puerto Ricans, right? And that's the that's the dilemma that the book really um, focuses on for Latinos is when you get to the mid 20th century, post-World War II, you've got all of these Mexican American and Puerto Rican veterans coming back and being treated really badly, being discriminated against. Um, and yet they're told that they're white and it's kind of a cognitive dissonance, right? Like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm wearing my uniform and I'm getting beat up. You know, what do I, how, how is it that I'm, you know, how am I getting any advantage of being white? And at the same time, you've got the rise of the black civil rights movement and uh, Latinos, Mexican Americans and Puerto Ricans really uh, embrace uh, 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 that well, they, they embrace a movement that is certainly inspired by the African-American civil rights movement, which in turn leads to a, the beginnings of the rejection of claiming that they're white and the embrace of a, um, you know, we are people of color, we are racial minority that starts in the 1970s, right? So you really see that transition and what I'm what I'm most interested in is, well, okay, what's happening between 1980 and 2020? In those 40 years, what is it that we begin to see in terms of the formation of a specific anti-Latino racism? Right. And so we have, uh, what we see as you're explaining, in the middle of the 20th century, right, you have Latinos themselves that are uh, particularly and predominantly, again, Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans uh, that are right, hesitant to, right, claim or be, um, you know, identified as, you know, what we'd say term broadly today, people of color, or particularly anything close to being black, right, because of, you know, their understanding of the racial hierarchy, which led some, not all of the groups, but, you know, some prominent civil rights groups of the eras to actually, you know, make claims to whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they were mm -hmm. certainly tenuous, but um, they, you know, their effort essentially in some ways towards, advancing civil rights or their own causes was actually perpetuating in some ways anti-black racism. Absolutely, absolutely. And and that is related to this idea of of mestizaje as well, right? right? Yes. So mestizaje is the concept of in Spanish, right? That that word is the 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 notion of of racial mixture. And it has kind of a it has a you know, it's 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 not something that fits easily into the American uh, understanding of how racism works, but it is a long part of this history, as as my earlier work shows, right? Um, but but the idea was that okay, so let me step back a little bit and just talk about how Spanish colonialism in Latin America worked, right? Great. So yeah. Mm -hmm the 
the Spanish colonial um, enterprise was a genocide of indigenous people as well as an incorporation of indigenous people. And that incorporation of indigenous people, you know, right? So, so um, in California, for example, it was exemplified by, by say the missions, right? And these missions functioned basically as plantations where uh, indigenous people were forced to do labor for the, the priests. Um, and at the same time, there was so much death and, and some of it was, was genocide, but other parts of it were just disease that the Spanish brought that they needed a new labor force. And so the Spanish turned very early to African slavery, right? And, um, and that was rampant throughout uh, Latin America. So throughout the Spanish Caribbean, throughout uh, Mexico and um, into uh, uh, South America and, and so forth. And so our, our ancestry is a combination of that, that Spanish, um, that Spanish ancestry, that very large, significant African legacy through slavery and the uh, very, very large um, indigenous population. Um, so I kind of, I kind of lost my track of where we were headed with this, right? Because we were wanting to get back to these, this kind of in between status that that right. Latinos right. have, and and you know, it, that mestizaje has in a way, it it was like when I was growing up, it was very much, I was taught to be proud that I was. A mestiza, right? right? Right. That was part of the the Chicano legacy, just like it was part of the Boricua legacy, right? For Puerto Ricans. But I, I in this book, I really talk about how mestizaje, the notion of mestizaje, had a it was a double edged sword, because right. it also implied the disappearance of blackness and the disappearance of Indianness. You know, like we're all going to combine and we're going to be one beautiful, you know, brown, brown uh, person. But but the truth is we have denigrated Afro-Latinos. We have denigrated indigenous Latinos. And I'm talking here about within our group, within our community. Right. I'm not talking about the the outsiders. I'm talking about what we have done to ourselves. You know, uh, one of the first questions that is always asked when a when a baby is born into a Latino family is, is, Oh, what, you know, are they blind? Are they dark? And, you know, right. Like that's the big exactly. thing. And, and in many families, you see that whole uh, variation, right? If you have yeah. enough kids, you're going to have quite a variation, you know, in that, uh, in complexion because of these roots. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so, so, so that, that, that racism I guess I want to say one more thing and then I'm going to, I'll let you ask another question, BJ, but, but I want to, <laughs> I want to link that over to um, the, how we think about blackness in the United States. Yes. We think of blackness as if you have any visible African ancestry, you're black. 
right? That's how that's how white supremacy thinks of blackness, right? Right. right. And unless you can pass for white, you're black, right? right. And one drop rule. Right. Exactly, the one drop rule. And that's not that which which by the way, that's only been the quote unquote, you know, rule of thumb uh for for about a hundred years. Um right. before that, it there we had you know, we we counted people who were um, quote unquote mulattoes, who were quote unquote octoroons in the census, right? In the U.S. census, um, but but that in order to enforce Jim Crow, right? In order to enforce segregation, you needed to have like a strict rule, right? And so that rule became: if you look black, then you're black. You have to ride in the black car. You can't live in this neighborhood, or you can't go to this school. Um, and with, uh, with Latinos, it's really been a, um, a different kind of, uh, both self-conception of race, but also this, this desire to say, I'm not black because I'm not going to be treated that way. Right. Right. And, and equally, um, you know, at, at, tied to the history of mesizaje or racial mixture, right, in Latin America, as you've explained, right, that I'm not Indian either, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that was that whole concept and like the nation building projects in Latin America that promoted this idea of, you know, a cosmic race or a mixed race people, thereby kind of attempting to so-called erase racial difference to unite very racially diverse populations, right? That's, you know, the, the whole project of Mestizaje built into, right, the national movements in Mexico and other parts of, you know, parts of Latin America. But that kind of, in some ways, I don't know, uh, the, if precondition isn't probably the right word, but that historical experience, um, genealogy perhaps, you know, is what, you know, Mexican Americans, Latinos bring into the U.S. racial context as they're trying to understand themselves and they're they're seeing how they're being put into this racial hierarchy or totem pole. I mean, they are literally, you know, trained to think themselves nationally as this, you know, in between people that they aren't black, that they aren't Indian, right? Yeah. Uh, and yes. So it's not entirely surprising, right, that they they make these claims. Um, yeah. You know, even though they're treated. You know, as people of color, and it doesn't excuse it, but it's just I appreciate how much you you go into explaining the background behind Mesizaheg and the nation building products, and associate it also with in in Latin American countries with you know racial whitening. That in Latin American countries, right, you have this concept of colorism, where you know even though they have very different racial conceptions and they don't exist purely on a black white you know kind of binary like the United States has for its last hundred years or so. Um, it is the fact that the whiter you are, usually the better outcomes you have, right? The the whiter you are, right? The the more the more most of the faces you see on TV, you know, even yeah. today, yeah. right? On Univision and yeah. Spanish language programming, right, are lighter, whiter faces, right? Right. Um, right. And, and so there's and, that whole history. Go ahead. Yeah. No, it's really it's really um, that's a really important piece of it. So I was thinking about you know one of the ironies of the Latin American independence movements, right? So I was talking about was talking about Spanish colonialism, and now you've moved us to the the independent states, right? Post colonial states of Mexico. And you look at what was happening in Mexico and Guatemala a hundred years ago, and that was the creation of state projects to basically assimilate Indians, right? right. And so. Um, you know, you should migrate to the city, you should give up 
your your folkways. You should, you know, right? You should you should basically become uh, more Hispanicized in the sense of practice Catholicism and speak Spanish, not your indigenous language. Those were particular projects of nationhood, building the post-colonial nation of Mexico and of Guatemala and many other countries. Now, going along with that, in many countries, including those two that I just mentioned, but also Cuba, Argentina, Colombia, other places, there was a explicit national agenda after, after independence from Spain to recruit white Europeans to their countries. Yes. And Argentina was kind of at one extreme of that where they did all sorts of things to basically minimize and eliminate the um, presence, for example, looking at their censuses, the presence of, um, of Argentinians of color, basically, but then they really encouraged and gave like um, land grants and, uh, you know, homesteads to white Europeans. And they particularly favored men coming from, say, northern Europe who could then mate with the population there and and better, quote unquote, better the population, making it wider. And Cuba did the same thing. They gave they gave um, land. They gave, you know, like you can get 100 acres if you're. Uh, uh, European. And when you look at the Cuban census, you look at this huge migration blip early in Cuban independence, early in the 20th century, of all these Spaniards who went to Cuba. And many of those Spaniards are are now in the United States, right? Those families. So you really see a bifurcation in the Cuban population in the U.S. The, the early, those who came um, early in the 1960s, right after the the Cuban Revolution, who came, by the way, as um, with the rights of asylum to the United States, right? They came, they were able to become citizens within a year, they received social benefits, including, you know, welfare, including English language training, including housing, including job training, all these benefits that we have never given to Mexican immigrants or Central American immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or Puerto Ricans, by the even though they were not immigrants, they were part of the United States, right, as a colony. Um, versus the Mariel uh, uh, wave of immigration from Cuba in the eighties, which was m- mostly Afro-Cubans, right? And so you see these, you see these different waves, um, and you can see that in other, other. Um, Latino subgroups as well. You can see these these dynamics play out. Um, but yeah, it is really a fascinating history. And what I'm trying to do in Inventing Latinos is explain and show how this is part of American history, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is some separate story that is, oh, yeah, that's cute. That's about Cuba. You know, no, this is part of American history. And it's been part of American history for centuries. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level 
today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. Well, and, and as part of both, you know, American history as in the United States, but, uh, you know, your first few chapters do a great job of think, of also incorporating this as a history of race in the Americas, right? Yeah. That, yes. You know, the history of race in the United States isn't devoid and entirely exceptional or unique. It is different and it has different features, um, but it does not, you know, exist in a vacuum, right? Away from the history of colonialism, race, et cetera, in the Caribbean and Central America, other parts of Latin America, right? That these right. ideas have crossed borders, right? And moved with people and capital flows, et cetera, to, to influence policies, right? Right, and especially because the borders have changed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. This uh, gets me to another question uh, that I have about... Um, the, the role of the important work that you do, the, the census is key to a lot of the work that you've done and a lot of the work you discuss. Um, I mean, early on in the book, I, I just remember being struck by, you shared the numbers from a 1646 census in New Spain, which is you know modern day Mexico, um, that showed equal numbers of blacks and Spaniards, right? Mm-hmm. And the Spaniards were actually criollos, right? There was actually people that were born right in, in New Spain, right? Um, uh, the colonies, that is, yeah. and then a ten, then ten times that amount, right, of indigenous people, uh, which you know this this blew me away because I understand the I understood the racial mixture, having you know done a lot of this reading, but um, to have it put in in stark figures like that, I don't think a lot of you know even Mexican Americans or Mexicanos right understand right, yeah. how much of a racial minority the the so-called Spanish blood you know is or, or was right, right? right even even so early in that well that's roughly 120 years you know into the colonial process but right. you know that's back in the 1640s so you can only imagine right what, what it, it is, is now yeah right now <laughs> or what it was in the 1800s right yes. all these ideas of you know heron volk right um, you know anglo-saxon racism yep. are being created you know uh, that you know just the racial mixture um, that had been occurring for centuries and and particularly in Latin America and the US Southwest is just you know, indigenous people and and you know African descended peoples, you know, were the dominant groups, right? Um, and uh, you know, definitely the, the dominant demographic figures, right? That, that have been passed on, so to speak. You know what I think is fascinating about that, though, DJ, is is it's it's there were Americans, uh, white supremacists, who saw that very clearly at the time, mm-hmm. like like when they were talking about uh, uh, incorporating. Mexico in 1848, they said, Mm -hmm. that is not a population we want. Those Mexicans are nothing more than this uh, admixture, they would call it, or mongrelization, right? They they very uh, understood very clearly what they were dealing with, right? Um, Right. You know, so so there was this kind of, uh, you know, racist recognition, right, of that, um, of the, the, the truth of that population. Um, and I think that what you just mentioned really puts into um, really puts into sharp relief the projects then of Mexico to whiten their nation right in the 20th century right um, so after the Mexican Revolution right and and so and we see that as you said before we see that reflected today if you look at Spanish television and you look at the telenovelas or you look at the news you know you're gonna see 
a uplift of white Mexicans, right? Phenotypically white Mexicans, um, not to mention all those with women with dark hair who dye their hair red. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, my dad says, you know, you go to a funeral, uh, a Mexican American funeral, and you look at the pews and you see, if you're, you see all these, you know, redheads. <laughs> it's like, um, uh, you know, the, those, those dynamics are very, uh, very much still part of, of our identity. They don't, they, because again, that's what allows us to claim this kind of, well, we're not black, but let me go back to what you were leading into about the census, right? Because mm-hmm. what's fascinating about that is that, so we don't see, it's not until 1980 as the result of lawsuits over the undercounting of Mexican-Americans in the 1970 census, it's not till 1980 that there's a nationwide effort to count Latinos, Latinos, right. Hispanics, right? Um, and that happens in 1980 and every year going forward. But in each census, since there was, since Latinos were counted since 1980, about 40% of all Latinos say they reject when so so let me let me step back so and a lot of people listening would would will will know this because they've just filled out their census forms recently Uh is you you have a question that says are you hispanic slash latino yes or no and if it's if it's yes you have to say you know a further specification are you mexican-american puerto rican cuban-american etc And then you go on to the next question. And the next question is, what is your race, right? What is this person's race? And I hate that question. I always hate that that second question. Because a lot of us don't know what to do with it, right? Right. We're like, even those those of us that study this, right? Even those of us that have been reading about it for for decades now, it's like, dang it, there's that stinking race question. Yeah, (laughs) because because so many people don't want to say that they're white. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to go around saying I'm black because I don't, right. even though I know I have African ancestry, right? right. I'm not. I, I'm not. I don't live a black life, right? Yeah, I'm exactly, not treated as black, right? Exactly. That's what we're thinking, right? Uh-huh. And I don't want to say I'm American Indian because even though I am indigenous in my in my origin, you know, I don't want to claim that because I feel like that's also something sacred and special. And I don't want to, you know, and so I'm one of those persons and maybe you are too, who two checks other I'm other, right? Well, 40% of Latinos say they're other, they're rejecting all those other racial categories. What we expect to see with the 2020 census is the second largest racial group in the United States will be other. Yeah. Wow. And Mm. it's all Latinos, you know, And that's why there was a plan uh, that was carefully, uh, carefully researched and thoroughly researched under the two Obama terms. Um, There was a plan to change the 2020 census to instead fold in those two questions. So there would no longer be that, are you Hispanic or not? But Latino would just appear, Hispanic Latino would just appear as one of the race options. And... The Trump administration um, ended that 
or he he refused to to allow that consideration. And at the same time, the Trump administration wanted to add the citizenship question, which the Supreme Court had to prevent them from doing. And I really see those two things as related, right? They both, to me, they both have to do with suppressing the voice and the power of Latinos. Um, Because I think a lot of people would have been very excited about having, having, not having that agony of like, okay, am I other again? But actually having an option that was true to them. Yeah. Oh, because it it matches what, you know, as you argue in both of these books, in this book and in, in, um, uh, you know, Manifest Destinies, which is why when I read Manifest Destinies, I was like, yes, like someone gets it. We are a race. Like Mexican Americans, Chicanos, we are racialized. We are treated as if we're something different, you know, and that's an experience that I had had. It's this experience that my parents had had, both my uh, my grandmother, my mother's mother's side, who's a you know immigrant from uh, Sinaloa, Mexico. My father's side, who's lived in New Mexico and Colorado for 450 years. You know that just matched that experience. You know, and mm-hmm. I think uh, you know as I read it in in that book and, and read it again this one, like it, it is what I think a lot of us do want, right? Because it's it's what we feel, you know, and it no longer puts us that in that limbo of. It, you know, I definitely don't want to choose white and I don't want to appropriate any type of black or indigenous identity because not that I'm ashamed of that, as you mentioned, but I have, I don't have that lived experience, right? People don't racialize me or judge me as black or indigenous. It's usually like, what are you? Or you're Mexican, right? Or, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. You're Hispanic. Right. Um, and that, that, you know, that speaks to, right, that lived experience that, that so much of us have. But it also speaks to uh, an issue that I want to get to larger is this this racial project or the racial projects that states, uh, nation states, that is, are invested and committed to, right? You refer to the United States as a racial state. Um, and so in conjunction of our discussion here with the, the census, and particularly you just brought up, you know, the Trump and this the, the, those two efforts, right, to both remove, and they did, they succeeded in removing the Latino you know, race question, um, and but they failed in the, the citizenship effort. But that was part of this, right, racial project where the United States is a racial state that is both creating and perpetuating uh, notions of, of the inequality and differences of races, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah. So that, particularly that concept of the, the racial state and how the census ties into that. Absolutely. So, so the idea is, you know, it, it helps for us to think about this in terms of um, some terminology that is pretty ubiquitous. And that is the terms uh, non-Hispanic whites and non-Hispanic blacks, right? So we have, we, we have those terminologies because be precisely because of that dynamic of Latinos who say that they're white, but basically they're not really white quote unquote. Right. And so, um, it's, it's like the, it's like this subtle way of saying, if we say you're non-Hispanic white, you're the real whites, right. (laughs) As opposed to the pretend whites. And that has to do with specifically, I think with this notion of the U S as a racial state, as a white nation. Right. And so the real whites are the ones who have the 
the ownership of the nation and the claim to Americanness, as opposed to say the imposter whites, right? Which is, is us, right? And so um, I think that that is, it, it's also in this whole debate about immigration that we've been having. And, and what I say is we, well, first of all, the immigration dynamic has been part of part of the national story um, since the 1830s when white Southerners started going into uh, northeastern Mexico in Texas, right? And so, so that's that's an important historical context. But but this notion of whiteness as a you know, whiteness as a project that's related to immigration and the demonization of immigrants as quote unquote illegals or those who look like illegals, right? So, and that's anyone who looks Mexican, who is presumed therefore to be illegal, even though 80% of Latinos were born in the United States, right? So, so that's, that's a way of trying to forestall the the demographic demographic transition. So ironically enough, the the beginning to count Latinos in the 1980 census had both the effect of increasing solidarity and the notion of, oh, Latino identity, Latino political power, um, Latino cultural power, right? as well as the fear of Latino, uh, Latino demographics, right? So I'm, and here I'm, I'm invoking books published around the turn of the century by Samuel Huntington and Pat Buchanan that demonized uh, uh, Mexican immigrants as basically a threat to the white nationhood right to the white nationhood and i think that trump has really seized on that in his camp he didn't create it it was there that was already Mm -hmm. there but he mobilized it right in a very powerful way and clearly he's continuing to do that because he's running a campaign of fear right now right Mm -hmm. he's everything that he's doing the law and order stuff the continuing with the immigration stuff continuing with the you know, um, creating MS-13 as as if they're this huge, powerful, you know, gang when they're a very small gang that the U.S. is largely responsible for creating. Right. <laughs> um, right. Because of the, the deportation of people back to El Salvador and, and dynamics uh, there. But he's he's creating this campaign of fear and it's fear around the idea of the impending demographic domination of whites by people of color. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. The fact that Latinos are going to be 30% of the population by mid century, that scares, that scares people. Mm-hmm. You know, it scares the Trump base. Yeah. And I think it even, you know, makes, you know, people that, that aren't, you know, so-called maybe Trump supporters or view themselves, you know, um, 
very conservative, conservatively in, in racial or social issues, it, it, it does create a side of, you know, uncomfortableness, right, for um, yes, yes. people it's- that see this impending demographic. So, I mean, all the, all the metaphors that are used, right, it's a tide, it's a wave, it's a tsunami, right? Whether we're talking about politics or demographics, these are the terms that are tossed around in discussing, right, particularly in, in the media and political punditry, right, uh, you know, on the changing demographics and the browning of America. Yeah, at the very best, it's it's ambivalence, but it's very often um, uncomfortableness and fear, right? And so um, I think that on the other side is that kind of fear and that kind of demonization of the, the quote-unquote Hispanic hordes as the, you know, we're celebrating or not celebrating, but marking the horrible El Paso massacre this week, right? That occurred a year ago. And that young man, white man who drove, you know, six hours to get to El Paso because he was, was filled with rage that, that, you know, quoting Trump, right. Wanting to kill Mm -hmm. the, wanting to kill Hispanics because they were taking over that, um, that is, is the extreme of that dynamic, but the, the more kind of dressed up version of that is, well, since uh, Trump saying last week, well, the, the Supreme court stopped me from including a citizenship question on the census, but what I'm going to do have my, my um, agency do is when they report the census results, they will not be including immigrants in those numbers, those final tallies, which is, ridiculous and and will be will be a uh he'll be sued on that he's already being sued on that he's gonna lose on that but again it's this notion of creating that that rhetoric and creating that fear but at the same time the positive side of all of this is that latino identity is stronger than ever because it's like wait a minute that's us. That's us. And we're fighting back and we're creating this. Uh, there's incredible renaissance in Latino cultural productivity. Right. And this sense of empowerment and it's happening in politics, too. Right. So people right. people respond to that kind of racism by saying, wait a minute, I'm going to register to vote and I'm going to vote. You know, I'm going to turn 18 and I'm going to be voting. Um, and it's it's having a. Uh, 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 it, it's it's a having a seismic uh, impact in places like Arizona and Nevada, right? right? We saw um, we saw in the last you know just twenty years in California, right? Turning yep. from the epicenter of the anti-Latino you know uh, movement with Prop One Eighty Seven to now you know a, a state that's a sanctuary state, right? I mean, right. I mean, unfathomable as I was growing up, you know. I mean, right. just and, no and way I would have seen that, that for people, right? So Prop One Eighty Seven right. uh, passed by the California voters in nineteen ninety four basically uh, was an effort to say we don't want to have immigrants in our in our state and we don't want immigrants to be getting any protections in uh, public benefits or any kind of rights and you know it was it was kind of the the uh, akin to the arizona 2010 show me your papers law sb 70 and and uh kevin de leon who was the president of the california senate when 
the sanctuary state law was passed basically said, you know, that's what that's what motivated me to become an activist and a politician. Right. right. And so that's that's a great illustration of that dynamic and how how things um, how things are changing. And I think I think that we're going to see that in more and more places. We're seeing that at the national level now. Yeah, there is a there is an, an incredible video that was created uh, last I think it was last year about uh, by um, Latino and Hispanic uh, um, legislators in office holders in California that's basically thanking Pete Wilson right for yes, starting yes. this movement. I remember that it's really fantastic. That is really it, uh, yeah. yeah yeah. But that brings us back to the whole idea of also again the role of the census in you know the the racial state you know having these projects and what's in it you, know, you you even referred earlier to, in the book to you know this is embedded in our constitution right with the three fifths yeah. clause right that yeah. that counted um, you know African slaves black slaves and, you know in the census in order to give more representation to the South right so that they could preserve slavery so that they could maintain power right um, right. In the new nation, that's the only way that they would have ratified the constitution, right? And that, that's part of this key compromise. But you know, since then, so it's it's really embedded in the DNA, if you will, of our of our you know political institutions. You know, that is using race, creating race, and per- perpetuating racial difference for political, economic, and social gain. And and that the state, the nation state, the United States itself, has been right there, right in in you know pushing the census and you you go through 150 year you know history it's 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 a nice tight little book so it's you know you go through it you survey it really well and quickly but in detail to show like decade by decade here are the racial categories that are being added and why right oh thank you for that that i i appreciate that compliment because i you know it was hard in a way it was a hard book to write because i'm trying to cover so much historical ground Right. But not in a way that moves in a, a chronological way, right? So each chapter really has historical context. But um, I and and trying to sort of strike that balance between having the history, having enough detail, but really focusing on what that means for today. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that yours your your history, what you just stated about the history of the U.S. and how we get. In 1776, what the racial state is doing, the next stage of that is, well, what happens after the Civil War, right? So 1860s, right? And we actually have, with the 14th Amendment, with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, we have a rewriting of that Constitution, right? It's a completely, it's almost like a new nation is born out of that Civil War Constitution, and the um, guarantee in the 14th Amendment of uh, birthright citizenship, the guarantee of the vote. Um, now, not to say that because of those changes in our Constitution, we did great. We know we didn't, right? But we know that that made us closer to having a, a equal and just society. Now, what I think is interesting is that who is the group now that's being targeted? Well, in terms of birthright citizenship being questioned, that's aimed at Latinos, right? Uh-huh. right? Who is it that is being targeted in terms of this notion of, well, let's not count citizens in the census. Let's not count them in the tally. 
it's Latinos, right? And so we're kind of at another inflection point now um, of, of really the nation having to grapple with, are we going to be closer to our, you know, are we going to kind of try to kind of further this idealism uh, of equality or are we going to, you know, which, which racial state are we going to be? Are we going to be the more um, authoritarian and, and uh, crude one? Are we going to be one that is, is moving towards some level of equal justice? And I think it, you know, I think that in that sense, the book comes at a good time for us to talk about how we, how Latinos want to show up in the movement for African-American reparations, as well as in the beginning, beginning the conversation of reparations for Latinos as well. Great. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate you bringing that up too. I um, mean, that aspect of, right, the racial state can function in two ways, right? It can be an oppressive racial state, or it can be one that actually is, is using, right, racial categorization, statistics, et cetera, in order to pursue anti-racist, right, policy to Correct. promote Correct. equality, right? To live up, as you say, you know, to the ideals, all right? If, uh, you know, there is something to the founding ideals, you know, of political equality, natural rights, you know, sovereignty of the people, et cetera, that are embedded within our documents, right? That is an opportunity. And you, and you posit at the end of your, your book that, that we are at this crossroads, right? We are currently at that moment right, uh, in both race relations and policy, and the U.S. as a racial state for trying to decide what type of nation do we want to be moving forward. Correct. Yeah. And I really feel like it's like, you know, it's going to, what happens in this next, let's say, um, the next 10 or so years is going to be really uh, formative in terms of what that next era looks like, right? So are we going to try to have like, uh, and I, I think this is true for reparations, the reparations con uh, for African-Americans as well, right? Sort of what we do in this next decade is going to be critical. And that's why this election matters so much, right? Um, what is the choice going to be? And then it's very likely that if if we do um, have a President Biden, you know, he's already said he's only going to be running for one term. So then who is who is that next president going to be? And how is this um, how is the nation going to turn forward um, rather than backward? Right. With this new demographic reality. Exactly. Well, and I, I'm not going to give away your book, but I am going to just in, entice our listeners by letting them know that you do have prescriptions or, or suggestions, right? Policy suggestions of things that can actually be done. So you don't just leave, you know, us all hanging yes. with uh, yes. sometimes like just rhetorical questions, but you lay out, right? Several suggestions, as you mentioned, yes. you yes. discussed reparations for African Americans, but particularly what reparations would look like for Latinos, right? Right. Um, and how to achieve that type of society. So I'm going to plug that. Uh, that's, a, for that's a little our, teaser. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
if you're interested in that. And that's one thing I love about, frankly, uh, you know, sociologists and, you know, social scientists, you know, my discipline as a historian, we don't really delve into, right, trying to prescribe <laughs> any, you know, policy suggestions uh, generally. Um, we kind of let our historical analysis and interpretation, you know, sit for itself. Um, right, right. <laughs> I do very much appreciate the mix that you provide in this book, you know, a glance yeah. into the past and an understanding of the important context that shapes you know, our present and then moving forward, giving us really what can we do or what, what are things that could be done, right, to achieve those ideals and, and um, you know, to not be stuck in this, you know, this conundrum anymore, right? Um, so I, I well, just- thank uh, you. I appreciate, I appreciate that, that uh, you, you've really been a, a great reader and a great, uh, great questions. Thank you for that. Well, thank you again, Laura, for coming on New Books and Latino Studies, for your time, for, you know, the, the effort to produce this book. I mean, you mentioned in the beginning of it also that it was it was quite the journey due, due to a, a lot of, uh, you know, administrative uh, commitments that you've had uh, at UCLA. But, uh, you know, you stayed, you know, committed to this work. And uh, it is incredibly important for, you know, our moment um, as our, as we've mentioned earlier, uh, kind of you know, re-emergence of, of a national conversation around race, particularly around anti-Blackness. And, and it's, again, it's important for, for both Latinos and Hispanics ourselves to understand, right, how we fit into this, but also for the nation, um, you know, itself, you know, to understand where Latinos uh, fit in, you know, with anti-Black racism, uh, and that there is this existence of anti-Latino racism, which is often dismissed because it's, you know, it's, it's usually converges into other issues of either foreignness or immigration and it's that's usually what's used to dismiss so like oh we're not talking about race here we're talking about right the law and citizenship mm -hmm. right when really we are right we are talking about race uh you know when you're talking about citizenship when you're talking about immigration and uh, your book is just so important to all these different conversations so thank you again for coming on and for writing this wonderful book well it's been my pleasure i've really enjoyed it thank you